This morning, our reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin with an image. It's a borrowed one. I'll say more about it in a minute. But here's the image. How do you explain color to a person who was born blind? Now, I had a member of our extended family by marriage who had a sister who was born blind. I've known other people who have become blind And if you were to ask that question uh, about a person who had become blind, it wouldn't really apply in the same way. They, They could have memory of color. As a matter of fact, for all I know, a blind person might be able to see color. But assume for a moment that person had been blind from birth and you tried to explain color to them. How would you do it? Would you describe red as hot? Think of the dial on your car whenever it tells you whether it's hot or cold. Would you describe blue as cool? Would you describe yellow as brash? You would try to use words, right? But words would fall short. They wouldn't quite capture color for someone who's blind. Now, just hang on to that thought, okay? Just leave it there, and I'll come back to it at the end. Today, we're going to talk in our series on the entire New Testament about the book of Thessalonians, actually, First and Second Thessalonians. And as you noticed, I chose the theme from one particular passage in First Thessalonians. But before I talk about the theme, let me tell you about Thessalonica. There was actually a picture, sort of up-close picture in the walk-up video of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city into which Paul may have sailed or perhaps went by Roman road. But when he entered that city, he was entering one of the most prosperous cities in the Roman Empire, now in modern-day Greece. As a matter of fact, to this day, Thessalonica is the second most populous and most prosperous city in Greece. Athens has about four million people, Thessalonica about a million people. 
But there's a way in which Thessalonica is way cooler than Athens. It's beautiful. It is, as a matter of fact, still the capital of the Macedonian region. Here's a picture of Thessalonica and what it looks like today. No, it doesn't look like that. It looks way, there it is. So the first picture in the walk-up video was right in front of that tower, which is ancient with the trees. This one gives you kind of an aerial shot. You can see the gorgeous coastline. It will be teeming with ships for cargo, and it will be teeming with vessels that are catching catching fish. And it's likely, though not certain, that Paul knew this harbor very well because he either sailed into it or perhaps sailed out of it at one time. Beautiful city. He comes to that city, and he doesn't stay very long. You would think, wow, of all the places to go and stay, Thessalonica, that looks like a good one. But he stayed there a very short period of time. And there was a reason for his short stay in Thessalonica. We read about it in the book of Acts. He came, and as usual, he spoke concerning Jesus as Messiah at the synagogue, arguing that Jesus actually was this Messiah that was anticipated. And a good number of the Jewish folks at the synagogue believed and began to follow Christ. But an even larger number of people that are often called God-fearing Gentiles, that is, people who were following the Jewish law and anticipating a Messiah, they believed. So the church began to swell in numbers. However, it came to an abrupt end. Not the church, but Paul's ministry. Because there were people who were rabble-rousers who decided to stir up some trouble for Paul. And they actually created a mob. Again, you can read about it in Acts. And they brought the mob out and they started shouting. They said, this guy Paul, he's preaching. And he's saying that Caesar is not Lord and King. He's preaching concerning another Lord and King, namely Jesus. They basically framed it as an insurrection. Paul's trying to overthrow the government. Don't you see we have a problem here? They got so riled up that they decided they would raid the home where Paul was. So the mob went to his house, broke into his house. It really wasn't his He was staying there, and Paul wasn't in the house. So what they do, they took Jason, probably the house owner, certainly the one that's mentioned in the book of Acts, and some other brothers, and they took them out into the square, and they arrested them, and they made them post bail to get out of prison. During this kerfluffala that's happening, Paul is oddly absent And apparently the believers, knowing that he was in harm's way, said to him, we got to keep you undercover. And so late into the night, probably two or three o'clock in the morning, they escorted him out of town under the darkness of night. Now, this letter is actually a letter 
of concern for those in Thessalonica. What's his concern? His concern is that they're confused. His concern is that they're worried. His concern is that they would continue to be persecuted, and they were. As a matter of fact, his concern was so great, and the brothers said, don't go back. They will get you. He sent sort of secretly Timothy, his loyal servant, to go check it out. He went to Thessalonica and talked to the people and got a report and brought it back to Paul. And 1 Thessalonians is a response to that report. In other words, Timothy said, this is how they're doing. These are the problems. Paul said, I'm going to write them a letter. And he did. Another thing that's interesting about First and Second Thessalonians, we think it might be, if not the oldest, one of the oldest epistles that Paul ever wrote, depending on how you date Galatians. So it was early in his missionary journeys that he wrote First Thessalonians. Now, what was the problem? It could be summarized this way. The people at Thessalonica were beleaguered by persecution and worried about the future. Oppressed by persecution and worried about the future. But not just what was going to happen tomorrow, the unexpected. They were worried about their future as believers as it related to Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Because it's pretty clear that Paul had been teaching that Christ was going to come again, the second coming, and redeem all those who had come to faith in him. And he was going to set up a new kingdom on this earth. This was something they had adopted with great joy as part of their belief system. And then persecution starts. Part of their question is, well, what about the people that died either in persecution or just for some other physical cause. What about them? Christ hasn't returned yet. Are they left out of the kingdom of God? Paul says, no. No, they're not. I promise you, they're okay. There may be another question that was haunting them. And I insert this one, not necessarily because it's in the text, but because in the context it makes sense. They may have been saying to themselves and to Paul, Oh, come on, is it really worth it? I mean, everything seems the same. Life goes on, people die, we get persecuted. Now we're following Christ, we're getting in trouble for it. Is it really worth it? And Paul writes an epistle, a letter of encouragement. So if you want to think of what First and Second Thessalonians are, you can use the word encouragement. That's what Paul's trying to do. I want to encourage you. So what is his basic message in summary? How does he encourage them? It's interesting. He says, I want you to live for God in this world and I want you to live differently than everyone else lives. In other words, you're a part of a subculture, I get it. Though he doesn't use these words, you're pilgrims and strangers, which are used other places in the New Testament and in the Old. I understand it. So live differently in this present world. 
Your calling is different. Your eyes are set on a prize. Live differently. Second thing he says, which is really interesting, he says, I want you to live a quiet life and mind your own business. (laughs) I mean, that's a good news for an introvert, right? This is the gospel for introverts. Mind your own business and live a quiet life. Don't get all worked up. He might have said that because he was trying to be protective to the people. Because to be too brash and bold and out there might have created more persecution. We don't know exactly why he's saying it, but we do know this. If we want to make an application to our contemporary world, we do know this. It is oddly dissimilar to what, for those of us who are in ministry, hear all the time, especially among American evangelical churches. Go big, go bold, throw money at it, make the program better. Then you'll have success because Jesus is worth it. Be even brash for Christ. Paul says something different. As a matter of fact, what he says sounds a little bit like the gospel of John. What I want you to do in terms of your witnesses, I want you to love one another. And you know what? If you love one another so much that it's obvious, people will begin to notice. And that's what he says here. I want you to live a quiet life, mind your own business, follow Jesus Christ, and the world will take notice. It's not a program. It's life. So let me stop and say something. Didn't say this in the first service. Honestly, didn't think of it. That happens to me a lot. (laughs) So what I want to say to you is thank you. You're those kind of people. I think our church has always been characterized by that kind of evangelism. Doing what's right. Following Christ. Minding our own business. Being absolutely open. Loving one another. Let's keep doing it. It's the most powerful witness to the world. Thank you. So now as to some of the particulars in terms of what Paul says. He starts out by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. At least that's one translation, not the one we read this morning, but I like that one. I don't want you to be ignorant. There's an implication here. Paul says, in order for you to understand, you have to understand well. In order for you to live right, you have to think right. The way you think, sound doctrine, is absolutely essential to a Christian lifestyle. So can I say thank you again? Thank you for being that kind of people. I'm not sure um, how I would have survived in some churches that really just don't like to think. But in this place, I feel right at home. And I watch your faces. Can't see them now for the most part because of those stupid masks. I'm not saying take them off. I'm, I'm following the rules too. But when I don't see the masks, 
I see your faces brighten up when I ask you to think about it. You think about it. And I want to say thank you. I don't want you to be ignorant, Paul says. I don't want you to be ill-informed. Sound doctrine is important. Second, he says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Now, by the way, we shouldn't um, paint with a, a blank canvas and broad brush strokes how everybody thought about death in the Greek culture. As a matter of fact, in the history of Greek philosophy, there was such a notion, a very well-developed notion and argument concerning the immortality of the soul. Started with Socrates, Plato, and on. However, that doctrine of the immortality of the soul, I wouldn't call it hopeful. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was sort of mysterious, shadowy, nondescript. It just was there. That's one strain of thought. Existence, but lacking in hope. Another strain of thought in Paul's time, which is the one he probably was more intending to communicate, by contrast, is the one that would have been part of his contemporary world. And it would never have included the idea that he gives to us in other epistles, O death, O grave, where is your victory? Nothing triumphal. As a matter of fact, uh, death was sad. One poet put it this way, Theocritus. There is hope for those who are alive, but for those who have died, they're without hope. Another Roman poet stated it this way. When once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. Hopeless. Paul tells them something different. He says, what I want you to know is this. For those of you who live in Christ and die in Christ, you will always be with Christ. Now, there's hope. It's not a dismal dark sleep. It's not an absence of consciousness. It's to be with the Lord. I don't want you to grieve as those people who have no hope. Let me hasten to add, Paul is not saying do not grieve. Not at all. We have a wonderful ministry here called Grief Share. Some of you have been a part of it. Others perhaps have only heard about it. Grief Share is a ministry that helps people walk through their grief, particularly in a loss of a family member. And you share stories and you counsel one another and you help each other understand what the stages of grief are. And it's incredibly important and helpful. Paul is not saying don't grieve. He's not saying don't go through the stages and just ignore it and whistle through the graveyard. No, no, Paul's not saying that. He's basically saying, I want you, instead of grieving without hope, I want you to grieve with hope. I don't want your grief to be hopeless. It's natural to grieve. 
But don't be ignorant because the reality behind grief and on the other side is eternal life. An even better one than you experienced with your loved one when he or she was alive. That's hopeful. Paul says, in terms of the other details, Christ died and rose again, and so it will be with all those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. When Paul says those who have fallen asleep, he's not talking about a soul sleep where it's a complete lack of consciousness. He's just using it as a metaphor for death. But death is not an absence of consciousness. Because in other places, Paul describes death this way. He says to be absent from the body, that's death, is to be present with the Lord. In other words, when you die and exit the body as one who was in Christ, you are still in Christ. You are present with the Lord. So it's not that kind of soul sleep he's referring to. It's basically a place of rest for the body. And the soul lives on eternally. I didn't know this, but I ran into it this week. Did you know cemetery actually means sleeping place? Isn't that interesting? Cemetery, sleeping place. Paul says those who have fallen asleep in Christ, on the last day when the trumpet sounds, they're going to come up and they're going to be first. If you happen to be hanging around when Christ shows up, you don't get the privilege of going up to be with the Lord in the air until those who have come out of the grave are going up to be with the Lord in the air. Now try to paint a picture of that. I don't know what it's going to be like. Is it like Ezekiel's bones coming together? Maybe that was an image. All I know is that God says that one who died and even is dust is going to be raised in newness of life. Wow, what a day. And then if we're around, we can go next. You're not first in line, but you will be with the Lord. So what's the summary of all this that Paul is speaking of? First, let me remind you of what seems apparent to me, and that is that Paul doesn't give details of the second coming. Very little, right? It's really scant. This is where the idea, I circle back around to the blind person from birth trying to understand color. And I borrow it from N.T. Wright theologian and biblical scholar who said, I want to explore this image as it relates to the second coming. What I want to say, he said, was it's kind of like trying to communicate color to a blind person. Paul doesn't give much detail because words only go so far. He can't even tell you what the second coming is all about because I don't think he knew what it was all about. He knew certain things about it that were the promises of God in Christ, but he knew very little detail. So we need to caution ourselves when it comes to the last things, eschatology, and getting over-specific or over-literal concerning the coming of Christ. 
The history of eschatology is replete with foolish, detailed statements concerning the coming of Christ that we got no business speculating about. Christ is going to come, and he's going to raise those who have died, and they will be with him, and it will be a new kingdom. It will be a new heaven and a new earth. End of story. How does the rapture take place? I don't know. When does it take place? I haven't a clue. What does the end of all things look like in detail? I don't know. I do know about images, like streets of gold. I doubt they're really streets of gold. But he couldn't do any better than to say the most valuable commodity in this earth, gold itself. Even that glorious metal is not worth comparing to the glory of the presence of God. So you might as well just walk on it. That's how great God is. We lapse into literalism a lot of times as conservative people who take the Bible seriously. And sometimes we do ourselves harm. Because we try to over-explain. And sometimes those who are not believers just think we're foolish. Sometimes we are. I think in large part that's uh, what has happened among critical scholars. They looked at an exaggerated legalism, uh, literalism among some conservative theologians, and they said, this is all just myth and fiction, right? Now, let me, let me say, I don't agree with them. It's not myth and fiction. But I don't want to get too literal about it. What, what's the main point of all this? It's this phrase, Encourage one another with these words. Don't dig down into the details of literalism. Just encourage each other with these words. Those who die will be raised. Those who have been persecuted will find eternal life. And you, my friends, who are walking through persecution right now and asking yourself, is it worth it? My answer is yes. Be encouraged. It's not only worth it. It is the pathway to eternal life. And what you're experiencing, whether it's pain or suffering, it will vanish like a pitiful mirage when eternity is experienced by you. Life is temporary in this world. And it seems oh so eternal especially when we're in the midst of conflict or pain, we think to ourselves, it'll never be the same. I'll never get over it. Paul gives us hope. Paul's teaching can be summarized with the words that the church has 
put in a, a phrase that we use. You'll recognize it every communion Sunday. He basically takes First and Second Thessalonians, and as he writes, the church looks at it and says, here are three phrases. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That triad is inseparably linked. The notion of Christ's resurrection and his second coming, it is the great reversal. The great reversal. Where sickness is reversed by healing. Where sin is reversed by peace with God. You know, we could talk a lot about sin and how devastating it can be and how enslaving it can be. But frequently at its baseline, what I realize about sin, it's a lack of rest. I'm trying to do something or be something or experience something that I think will be better than where I am right now. And I'm controlled by my desires. The great reversal says that sin will be finally destroyed and you will have absolute peace and your longings will be completely fulfilled. The great reversal is not just about sickness and health. Not just about sin and peace. It's about sorrow turning to joy. It's about death turning to life. All of that is because of the resurrection. It would not have happened if all three phrases were not true. Christ died. It was necessary to conquer sin. Christ has been raised. It was the triumphal conquest of sin. And Christ, because of the resurrection, will raise us again in newness of life. Thanks be to God. It's not only the great reversal, it's the great triumph. Death is defeated. And finally, it's the great meaning We live in a world where everybody's searching for meaning. We live in our own reality where we're constantly struggling to have deep meaning in our lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Christ and the promise of the hope eternal that is in Christ. That is the great meaning of life. It makes everything that has preceded that moment when we're ushered into his eternal presence make sense. It makes sense of our life now, even though we can't see the end when we walk by faith. It is the reality that brings great meaning to life. There's nothing else that brings such meaning to life than this reality. Christ has died, Christ is raised, and Christ will come again, and you will be raised with him. It's the good news in a world of bad news. So, comfort each other with these words. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the comforting words of Scripture. 
We find comfort in music, relationships, poetry. But the main difference in being comforted from your words is that your words are true. They're not platitudes. They're not just feel-good moments. They're reality. They're promises that have been declared in Christ Jesus, the risen Lord and Savior of our life. So we pray, Lord, this week as we walk through life, and sometimes it just doesn't feel so good, you will encourage us with these words. We pray this week when we lose someone or something that feels like death itself, we will be encouraged with these words. We pray that as we walk with one another on any given day, we will say to one another, Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Be encouraged by that truth. In the name of Christ, our risen word, we pray. Amen.